I had the great privilege of watching the transition of power this weekend. One of my oldest and dearest friends, at least one of the few who's alive and will admit to being my friend, Pastor Roland Barnes, is retiring as the senior minister of Trinity PCA in Statesboro, Georgia, and I went down yesterday to speak at the celebration. And I said then, I don't know of a more gifted minister who's done more for the expansion of the kingdom of God than Pastor Barnes. He planted Trinity Presbyterian Church 42 years ago. He oversaw the establishment of a campus ministry at Georgia Southern. He established Trinity Christian School, an excellent K-12 school. He established a biblical counseling ministry there. He oversaw the planting of eight other churches in Savannah River Presbytery. And then, in order that he could go to Peru and preach in Spanish, he learned Spanish in his 50s. Who does that? Though in, in 2005, just to give you a sense of Roland, my friendship, in 2005, he and I flew to Peru. And for some reason, whenever we get together, adventures happen. Sometimes the police are called. But we flew to Peru, lectured in Trujillo, and we were supposed to fly to Cajamarca on a Saturday night. And we were <clears throat> to begin preaching the next day, Sunday. Bad news. All flights to Caja Marca, our destination, were canceled. We watched them on the board, cancel, cancel, cancel. We walked up to the counter, asked why. The man behind the counter shrugged his shoulders and said, this is Peru. So we called our connection in Caja Marca, Alonzo Ramirez, our missionary, and said, what do we do? Alonzo said, there's one bus leaving in about 10 minutes. Get on it and take it to Caja Marca. It's an eight-hour drive. So at 11 p.m., Roland and I boarded a bus for the eight-hour overnight bus ride through the Andes Mountains, headed up from sea level up to 9,000 feet for Cajamarca. And as we got on, we noticed at each stop we were joined by farmers carrying their goats onto the bus, a mariachi band, stewardesses carrying drinks, and the hairpin turns around the cliffs and the boulder-strewn roads are a test for the strongest stomachs. Even some of the goats were looking green in the face. And in some places, the road was paved, but in most it's not. My kidneys were never the same after that. Sunday morning, our bus rolled into the Cajamarca bus station at 7 a.m., and Alonzo grabbed me and said, Carl, you look terrible. Come on, you're preaching the early service in 30 minutes. So that's, that's my experience with Roland. By the way, he'll be here to speak at our missions conference this fall. But this morning, my dear friend Roland preached his last sermon at Trinity, preaching the last verses from Philippians. I think, I think I'll have to check with him, I think he's preached through every book of the Bible at Trinity in 42 years. And he now hands the baton over to his successor, the very capable Jim McCarthy, who many of you know, who's an outstanding minister. The Apostle Paul had a moment like this when he said to the Corinthian church, I've laid the foundation, in 1 Corinthians 3, I've laid the foundation and now another will build upon it. Biblical ministry always has succession in view. A true gospel minister doesn't want his ministry to die with him. He wants a more faithful and a more gifted minister to build upon the foundation he's laid. And so in the case of Trinity Presbyterian in Statesboro, Georgia, as my friend Roland hands the baton to Jim McCarthy, Jim's task is very clear. All of us have gathered around him and told him what his task is. It's to keep building, keep strengthening the ministry that exists. Preach the word, fortify the church, go from strength to strength. 
The Lord cares for the well-being of his church and will not leave them as orphans. And what we're going to see tonight is we're going to see one of the two or three great transitions of power in Scripture. When the baton is passed. And in these texts from the life of Joshua, we'll see how God prepares and raises up men to shepherd his flock. Let's seek the Lord's help now. Sovereign Lord, you've given us this text by divine inspiration. And you have told us that it will be profitable for us. It will profit us for doctrine. It will profit us for reproof. It will profit us for correction. And it will profit us for instruction in righteousness. That we might be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So take this word, press it home to our minds and hearts. Deepen our trust in Christ. Strengthen our love to him. And especially, O oh Lord, teach us... It, for the life of the church, what this text means for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The two passages that Mr. Rios read, and you're hearing a moment ago, Numbers 27 and Deuteronomy 31, they come after 40 years since Israel has been delivered by a mighty hand from Egyptian slavery. Forty years have passed since the tragic events at Kadesh Barnea. Aaron and Miriam Moses' older siblings have died. In fact, a whole generation has died. Israel has been busy burying bodies in the wilderness for the last 40 years. And God has just given Israel victories over Og and Sihon. And their time of exile and wandering in the wilderness, which is a time of severe chastening, is now drawing to a close. It's time to enter the promised land under the blessing and direction of God. The nation is now poised on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan. But God had said to Moses, Moses, you cannot, you will not enter the land. The reins of the government must be passed off. Moses will be taken in death soon. He must go the way of all flesh. Another must be found to carry on and complete his great work. And the biblical narratives we're going to study tonight, I hope you have a finger in both of those texts in Numbers 27 and Deuteronomy 31, are going to tell us how the transitions from Moses to his successor took place. We're studying the life of Joshua, and so what we've come to is Joshua's official ordination into his office. And you'll want to, first of all, look with me at Numbers 27. In a moment, we'll also look at Deuteronomy 31. And I will tell you right now, in terms of these texts, if you're trying to coordinate the chronology, it is, it is extraordinarily difficult to discern. Since you have a, sec a telling of the story, then a second and a different telling. We don't know exactly if this refers to one event or a cluster of events, so we're going to treat it together as a whole and a fabric. And so look, first of all, at Moses' request to God for his own successor. That Moses asks for a successor is fairly amazing. What provokes him? What's the catalyst to this request? Look at Numbers 27, verses 12 and four, through 14. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abiram and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you shall be gathered to your people. That's a euphemism for you'll die and be buried with your people. As Aaron, your brother, was garried, gathered. For in the wilderness of Zen, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to howl on me at the waters before their eyes. 
And so the Lord is telling Moses why he doesn't get to go into the promised land because of a, of a striking act of rebellion. This is the Lord's chastening for Moses. Moses realizes his days are almost up. He'll soon die. And so he goes to the Lord and pleads for a godly successor. Look at verse 16 where Moses asked the Lord, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, Set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now I want you to notice Moses' tender, compassionate concern for the people after he's gone, that they might not be like sheep without a shepherd. He won't be with them when they enter the promised land. He won't even see them when they go in. Now, if you're looking at that phrase in Numbers 27, verse 17, you think, boy, that sounds so familiar. That's because it is familiar. Keep one finger here and look at Numbers or Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 9, we're going to hear the exact same phrase applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and 36, we read these words. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. It's the exact same phrase that was used of Moses. Just as Moses had compassion on the whole wandering flock of Israel, so does Jesus on the whole nation of Israel. Now, Jesus, of course, he sees wandering sheep, and since he's the good shepherd, he wants to do something about it. What is it that arouses the second person of the Trinity's compassion in Matthew chapter 9? Lack of direction. Lack of caring, shepherding leadership. And the application that we're meant to see, whether it be Moses or Jesus, Christ-like leaders always have a deep, abiding concern For the welfare of the sheep. If there's anything you should understand about leaders, the first question you need to ask is, do they love the sheep? We've said this before with men who have come and said, I think I have the gift for eldership. And I've said, okay, I disagree, but tell me why. Well, I really like theology. I said, I've noticed that. I've noticed that, and I've noticed that you will get in a huddle of two or three other guys and You'll pull out your copy of Charles Hodge or John Calvin, and you'll talk about that. And people who are hurting are walking right past you. You don't seem to care for the sheep. One of the first signs that a man is called to the eldership is, is can he say with Moses and can he say with Jesus, I have compassion on the sheep because they have no shepherd. Well, Moses shows himself here to be a foreshadowing of Christ with the mind of Christ. That's remarkable. Moses isn't the least bit jealous of the man that God is going to raise up, who will get to do what he couldn't. Look at verse 17 in Numbers 27. When Moses asked for this specifically, look what he prays. He prays for a man who will go out and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in. And this means at least that this is going to be the man who leads them into the promised land. It's fascinating that in all of this transfer of power that occurs from Moses to Joshua, there is not the least bit of holding on to the reins of power. 
No displays of jealousy or resentment. Because Moses realizes something profound that every great leader does. He realizes they're God's people, not his. And he realizes it's God's timing, not his. I think of men whom I've watched who have been way past any usefulness in the ministry. But they refuse to step down. And they refuse to make it easy for their successors. And they've been the cause of division and infighting because too few men, leaders in Christ church, have the largeness of heart and the magnanimous character displayed here by Moses. Think how big a man Moses is. The leadership is being handed off to a man whose gifts are unlike his, who's even from a different tribe than him. But I want you to notice how meek and submissive to God's timing Moses is. He expresses confidence in God to supply their need. Look at verse 16 of Numbers 27. He addresses God as the God of the spirits of all flesh. In other words, Moses says, this is the one I'm praying to, to provide a successor who will carry on my labors. In this title, the God of the spirits of all flesh, he expresses confidence that God who created all and sustains all can certainly find and equip the right man to take over. Look at God's answer to his petition. Look at verse 18. The Lord designates Joshua as the man for the job. I doubt if this came as any surprise to anybody in Israel, but this is the authoritative word where the Lord reveals to Moses, and he says in verse 18, Take Joshua, the son of Nun. And he gives Moses specific directions concerning Joshua's ordination. Look at them there beginning in verse 18. Moses is to lay his hand on Joshua. This is always a symbol showing visibly designating this is God's man. And so in front of everybody, Moses puts his hand upon Joshua. And this is an actual transfer of wisdom and power to Joshua. And Joshua, look at verse 19, is to stand before the high priest and the people of God. This, in other words, this, this transfer of power has to be absolutely public. There must be no doubt concerning the identity of Moses' successor. Moses must give Joshua a commission and a charge. He must exhort him and command him. Moses must put, according to verse 20, his own honor and authority on Joshua. He must exalt his successor as opposed to demeaning him. You'll hear nothing like this come out of Moses' mouth. Joshua will never match up to my wisdom and my judiciousness or my meekness and humility especially. Notice what Moses does. Look at verse 22 and 23. You see those most glorious words in all of Scripture anytime they're stated. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He willingly obeys. He relinquishes power and position with dignity and grace. Do you know how hard it is to let go of power after you've held the reins for 40 years? But Moses is able to do as the Lord commands him. I want you to notice what Joshua hears when he's commissioned. Now turn over in your Bible to Deuteronomy 31. And what Joshua hears are great encouraging promises. He hears these sort of promises in Deuteronomy 31, verse 7 and 8. Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. 
What an incredible promise. Joshua has been wandering with these Israelites for 40 years and thinking, will we ever get into the land? And now from the mouth of Moses the prophet, he hears, you will lead them into the inheritance. And then he hears an even more astounding promise. Look at Deuteronomy 31 verse 8. The Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He'll be with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Now, do you notice what the promise is to Joshua that puts steel in his backbone? It's the same promise that we get in the Great Commission. It's the same promise that we have. The Lord will never leave us or forsake us. And what Moses is telling Joshua is, Joshua, all these kingdoms, all these Canaanite tribes, all the land of Palestine... All this will be yours. You will be in the middle of Israel's finest hour up until this moment. But then he hears some very sobering promises. Look at Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 14. And you're going to scratch your head and say, these are almost contradictory. Look down at Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 14. This is a lengthy passage. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you'll rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. Wait just a second. Carl, where did the encouragement go? Look at what the Lord is telling Moses now. And what you have to, let me just stop and, and tell you exactly what's happening. The Lord is telling Moses and Joshua the whole story. Will you go in and triumph? Yes. Will the people of God apostatize? Yes. Look at verse 16. Behold, you'll rest with your fathers. This people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil which they have done." in that they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves. The song the Lord is referring to, turn the page to Deuteronomy 32, is the song of Moses. Therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they'll turn to other gods and serve them. And then they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many troubles and evils have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. It will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel." Now, look at this telling to Joshua. Look carefully. Deuteronomy 31, 23. Then, then, after hearing these ominous words, he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, 
For you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So turn over to Deuteronomy 32. When we read of the song of of Moses, we read at the, the close of it in verse 44 of Deuteronomy 32 that Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. So measure out what Joshua has heard. He's standing right there. He hears the the prophecies of, will we enter the land? Yes. Will the people be apostates and hard-headed knuckleheads? Yes. And he even hears the song that the Lord gives to Moses to sing, a, a historical song when he's being commissioned. Great and encouraging promises and sobering prophecies. Now, I want to make several applications, lengthy applications to us tonight. We'll be looking more at the transition of power in the weeks to come because it's a, it's a multi-phase thing, but I want you to see the beginnings of it. A few applications. The first is, in these texts, we have a marvelous example of giving and receiving exhortations. Think of the giving of exhortations. Moses assumes nothing when he exhorts Joshua. What kind of man has Joshua been for the last 40 years? Had he been a coward? No. Had he ever been unfaithful? No. He'd always been strong and courageous. Now it's time to commission Joshua. What do you say to a man like that? Here's what you say. Be strong and courageous. He doesn't need that, does he? God knows better. How I wish that we could learn this. We assume that mature folks don't need reminders about Christian basics. Well, that 60-year-old spiritual giant who's walked with Christ for 45 years, she doesn't need me to encourage her to be strong. Moses didn't reason like that. And by the way, in terms of receiving an exhortation, you have a great picture here of Joshua on the proper way to receive an exhortation. Joshua, knowing himself, when Moses comes to him and gives him the exhortation to be strong and courageous, he is not in the least offended. He receives the exhortation as the very words he needs instead of taking offense and saying, why are you telling me to be strong and courageous? Do you think I'm weak? Do do you get offended if someone, say every year or so, comes to you and says, be strong, trust God. Go on with him. Do you take offense if even somebody just rarely ever exhorts or admonishes you? My friend, then you don't understand the tenor of the scriptures. Hebrews 3.13 says we are to encourage one another daily. I need brothers to come and exhort me on a regular basis towards faithfulness, and so do you. The second application. We're given here two examples of faithfulness to a calling in the face of apparent futility. Listen to me carefully, because I know how your mind works. It works like mine works, that as you're watching what the Lord has been saying to Moses and saying to Joshua, Joshua is saying, I'm being set up for futility here. The Lord is saying, yes, we'll go into the land, but the people will be apostates. It's just going to be 40 more years of the same. This will be a maturity in life and ministry set up for futility. Moses is the first example. When did God tell Moses he couldn't go into the land and couldn't complete his labors? 
way back at Meribah, just a few months out of Egypt, 39 and a half years ago. Moses had to go 39 and a half years with that knowledge that he would not go into the promised land. But he led the people of Israel faithfully for 40 years. And at the end of his life, you see a man who has some human sadness, to be sure. But most of what you see as you study Deuteronomy is a man meticulously careful to make sure that he does a seamless transition of power so that God's people are well led. Never do we hear from Moses. Listen to me carefully here. I'm speaking to people who maybe have had a big fall, large sins. You're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, you think, what's the use? I've blown it so badly, I can't really be of any use to the Lord. I can't serve. And you pout. Pouting is completely unbecoming for the Christian, especially a Christian man. You see no sense of frustration or futility on the part of Moses. The second example is Joshua. It is commissioning. Before he steps into the office even, he is told by the Lord and by Moses, the Lord's mouthpiece, that the people he'll be leading will apostatize and bring down God's temporal wrath upon them. Joshua doesn't say, well, what good are all your promises, Lord? How long is it going to be before we've conquered the Canaanites and we're in the land and this nation will turn on me just like they did on Moses? Joshua doesn't say, Why should I labor so hard at my calling, organizing carefully, fighting valiantly, praying without ceasing if this nation will just break the covenant with God at some point in the future? There's a wicked sort of fatalistic, resigned complacency that plagues many. Moses doesn't say while he's leaning on Caleb, why should I sweat and pray, interceding, judging, leading? I don't even get to reap the benefits. Why should I work so hard? I don't get to set foot in Canaan. Parents, do you ever say, why should I be a faithful parent? My kids are almost grown. They're 18, 20. It's obvious they're never going to be saved. They're never going to make anything of themselves. Why should I waste any more time on them? There are wives in this room who said, said to me, Carl, I've been submissive to my husband for 30 years, and he's just grown harder and more insensitive. What's the use? Sandy and I had a relative say to us a few years ago, the last 20 years I've lived for him, well, by golly, the next 20 years are for me. How do we remedy this mentality, this fatalistic mentality that says, oh, what's the use? By reminding you that God never guarantees you that you'll reap a string of unqualified successes. But he does call you to faithfulness, and listen to me, faithfulness is success. How we need to learn that. Faithfulness to the commands of God is success. As a parent, as a spouse on the job, if the lives of Moses and Joshua teach us anything, it is faith in God's promises and faithfulness in our callings. A third application. In all human transitions, whether judge to judge, president to president, CEO to CEO, but especially minister to minister. Remember, it is a sovereign God who puts one down and raises up another every single time. Look back at Numbers twenty-seven sixteen, 
Moses demonstrates that he understands this quite well. And this is something that we have to wrap our brains around in every transition of power. It's simply this. It's the Lord putting one down and the Lord raising another up. When Moses asked the Lord, look what he asked him to do in Numbers 27, 16. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. In other words, he's saying, Lord, would you raise up someone now? It's time for me to go the way of all flesh. Lord, you raise him up. But also remember in all human leadership transitions that all men are meant to fade and die. This is not a cause for depression or panic, but a call to keep our gaze fixed on Christ, who he alone is the one ruler who the Lord will never bring down. He alone. He'll not reign for a thousand years. He'll reign forever and ever. That glorious chorus that Handel just repeats and repeats until it's in your head like a chant from Revelation 11. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There will never be a transition of power from Jesus to anyone. He will never grow old or wear out or lose interest. He will always love and shepherd his people. Leaders in church and state and business come and go. But Jesus is the greater Moses, who ever lives to rule his flock. Look to him for your unchanging rock and savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, we see your great love for the sheep, faithfully feeding them, guiding them, providing for their leadership, and then coming in the flesh to show your ultimate love for the flock. Strengthen us to love you more and trust you more as our sovereign provider. We pray.